Leslie, this is Zach, as always, and with me today, Clint is back for another episode. How you doing, man? Doing fantastic, buddy. How about yourself? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Um, it's spring break here at the school, and it's really funny because all the all the people I work with, all the other professors in biology, we were all were laughing that this is supposed to be our break, yet we're all doing the work we should be doing normally. <laughs> because we don't have any meetings or any, you know, anything like that. So we just get to be biologists this week. So that's kind of nice. Um, but other than that, things are going well. Uh, animal updates, as always, just to kind of keep people in the loop. Um, everybody's out of brumation now. I pushed my brumation a bit more than I normally do. So we'll see what, if anything, is different. Nothing's different. Uh, it feels kind of weird not putting animals together during spring break because that's normally what I'll be doing and, and pulling them out and getting them all set up during spring break just feels a little bit off. But uh, we I took the universities. I don't know how many hognose snakes we have. We're pushing 30. So they're all set up in my house right now because we got to breed them and make a whole bunch of babies for a new master's thesis. I've learned that uh, we have to do those. At my house, whenever we try to breed anything with a hundred people walking in the room, turns out that that just doesn't work out. So uh, I have a very patient wife, and she walked <laughs> into the room and was like, "So you got a new rack?" And I was like, "Ah, uh, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> this is a temporary thing. This is not a permanent, you know, acquisition." So I did that, um, and. Uh, my false water cobras, which is what I guess I'm known for if I'm known for anything in herpetoculture. Um, we had our first one have its prelay shed, and then the, one of the ones in my office here with me right now, she's going into her prelay shed. So we're going to likely have water cobra eggs on the ground, or false water cobra eggs on the ground by end of the month, early April. So that's kind of exciting. Awesome. And then the only other update for me is I, um, I was invited by Phil and Roy with Project Herpeticulture to come on to their show uh, and, you know, be a guest. So it was like role reversal, which is kind of cool. And um, I kind of feel like that episode went down kind of like a fever dream. Uh, <laughs> they asked me a couple questions. I'll, let, I'll, I'll You have to go to the podcast to listen to see what the questions were. But they were things that I have thought about maybe for the past five years and haven't really ever had an outlet. And, of course, when I finally have an outlet, it's being recorded for the entire world to hear. <laughs> so I have no idea what I said. I just know that they, like, jumped up and down on a couple nerves I have in a good way. And I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. And then I was done. And when I was driving home, because I come up to school to record, I, I, I remember thinking, like, what the hell did I do? <laughs> what is going to be in this? This is, this is going to be interesting. So. So yeah, that's um, that's what's up with me. Uh, but uh, yeah, what's up with you? Oh, it's been uh, <clears throat> excuse me, been an interesting couple weeks. Uh, we've got our first couple of clutches of eggs on the ground. Actually. Nice, Priscina, um, <clears throat> greenbush rat snakes. Oh, cool. Uh, got our first clutch of those out. Those are always early, you know, breed in the fall, <laughs> lay in the spring kind of thing. Um, and it was. <clears throat> That clutch was from a female. I wasn't, I couldn't even tell she was grabbing, you know, it's one of those. Oh, looks where she just surprised us. Yeah. Um, but those look good. Yeah. So I've got them incubating now. 
I say incubating, but I do those at room temp. So yeah. they're, they're, they're in a box a on top of the shelf, yes. Um, yep. We have had uh, ball pythons starting to lay as well. Um, I'll tell you a, a funny thing that I wanted to share, and it just so happened to have happened today. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's going to have it, it's it's completely irrelevant, but I just think our listeners will get a kick out of it. So I did something today I never thought I would do. I got a message okay. from a friend of mine and their employer had taken a trailer down to Bradenton, Florida. Um, they had hauled a car down there, unloaded hung out for a few days, loaded up, came back. Whenever they were unloading their trailer here, they found an anole, a green anole, right? Okay. Green anole, brown anole. Yeah. And so she messages me because they wanted me to ship it back to Florida. (laughs) This little green, single baby anole. And Uh and so I, I told him, I go, so I can. Um, it's going to cost you about sixty five dollars yeah. in shipping and everything, and that's about a ninety nine cent animal kind of thing. Um, I'm sure I could find somebody who would love to take care of it. Uh, no, no, we we want to make sure it gets back home. So today, I shipped a single <laughs> solitary anole from Indiana back home to Florida. So oh, there you go. It's uh, one of the, the things you, you just never know what uh, what the retail environment's going to bring you, and that's uh-huh. what it was. Well, there, so, it's damn, pretty interesting. That is one lucky anole. <laughs> that's what I said. <laughs> um, but like you, we've got everything up, and uh, it, you know everything's warmed, uh, so we're getting everything back in the feeding routines, and <clears throat> we're kind of figuring out what those routines need to be now. Uh, we're up to. Five, six different rooms uh, of snakes, including the nursery. Um, and so it's we're figuring out, do we feed everything same day? Do we break that down into chunks? Uh, there's certain animals, instead of feeding once a week, we want to get them on a five-day rotation, put a little extra weight on them. How are we you know, going to maneuver that? Um, so it's this is our first season, obviously, in the new facility and, and under the, you know, the new banner here and so figuring out what we want that to look like and um oh yeah it's i'll tell you something else we've been doing quite a bit is uh presentations at local schools oh that's Um, you know it is and it feels so great Mm -hmm. to do it and you you start with one and then you come home and within two days you've got emails from four more because they've seen it on social media you know it continues to grow uh the only downside is it's amazing the the one to two hours of your day that you lose doing that, how far behind <laughs> that yeah. puts you on everything else. It puts you yes. so much further than two hours behind. The so, feels on that um, one. <laughs> you know, so, so we're that. Too. Yeah. <laughs> but it's uh but it's been a great time. I mean we we're getting to share the hobby with so many kids and oh yeah. Uh, you know, through the store Families. I mean, so many families, first time reptile keepers coming in and falling in love with these different animals. And it's just it's been been hits you right in the feel goods, you know. Oh, yeah. It gets you right in the heart. Yep. Absolutely. So it's it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of running around and a a lot of uh, not feeling like you're going to catch your breath. But at Mm -hmm. the end of the day, you feel good doing it. So 
No, um, I, so I know really all, all about that. Weeks. Go ahead. <laughs> when I was in college, um, my summer job, I, I worked in a nature center. And I don't know how many snake talks I gave when I was in that nature. I know there was one week where just in one week I gave 30. Like, because I just wanted to see if I could do it. And it was the busiest week in the park, and there were people just rolling in. And I was like, well, I can either sit in the corner. This is before the internet. This is before smartphones. Oh, we had the internet. I guess it wasn't that bad. But uh, you could, you didn't have it in your hand everywhere you went. Um, but, no, I mean, you're right. When you, when you, the, my favorite's when you get the kid to light up like a Christmas tree. And then because the kids lit up like the Christmas tree, the parents are like, damn it. We have to kind of like these things because we like little Johnny and and little Johnny's like the hook to get them to to segue over. And then once Mm -hmm. you convert one of those two, it's all over at that point. Like, you know, and then boom, they're probably not killing snakes anymore. Or at least they're going to say good things about snakes. And and that leads to what we all want in the end, which is people just not to hurt these animals that we love so much. So, yeah, you got I'll tell you what you're telling me you did 30 in a week. Good. Gosh, man, that's well. Uh, that was my only job, though. I didn't have to take oh, care yeah. of my entire job. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah. I, I've uh, I, I've kind of hardcore limited myself to one. Yeah, no, a week. no, no, just one a week is all no. I do. Now, one of the real neat things hmm. is the 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 gamut of the audience I'm getting to speak to because it's we've done a few elementary schools, we've done some mm-hmm. daycares, but he, just last week um, I did two presentations at uh, one of our local uh, colleges. For their yep. oh, uh, nice. yeah, for their bio uh, bioscience uh, class and or bio whatever it was, um, and so it's getting to kind of adjust from mm-hmm. you know this snake is from this area and it likes to eat this to getting to talk about the genetics and color mutations yep. and you know all this with the adults and seeing but you're still seeing their eyes light up just as well. Um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, watching the interest whenever at the end of the talk, everybody gets to come pet something or hold something, that kind of thing. So, uh, but getting just the whole, the whole gamut, you know, of age ranges and, and knowing that to your point that hopefully at the very least, after they walk out of there, they won't kill that snake they find in their backyard. Exactly. Um, so I think that's an excellent point there. Yep. Yep. All righty. So are we ready to jump in? I'm ready to roll. All right, cool. So our guest tonight is April Linkfield. Uh, April has a Facebook page and a website called House Snake Morphs. Is it HouseSnakeMorphs.com? It is, yeah. mm-hmm. All right, cool. And uh, a lot of people wonder about the name of the podcast. And with the name of the podcast, we're not Colubrid Radio. We're Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. And I'm real excited about tonight's episode because we get to honor that colubroid part of our name. Um, April is a specialist in lamprophyid snakes. And just a like, really quick nerdy breakdown on that. Lamprophyids are, are a family of snakes that are more closely related to cobras and mambas than they actually are to our North American rat snakes and milk snakes and what we would think of as a traditional um, colubrid. But historically speaking... Until some molecular data came back that really kind of drove home. We've got this wrong when it comes to African snakes. They were glumped into the dumpster fire that was Colubrid, Colubridy back in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. Uh, so 
when it comes to taxa that April maintains, you know, we covered this before the show, and it's pretty much if it's an African lamprophyid and it's in herpetoculture, April's pretty much working with it. And so among those snakes, without question, the ones that are most abundant are the house snakes. Uh, and we have two genera here, Lampro- Lamprophis and Boadon. Boadon used to be Lamprophis, but then they got split away. Uh, and these two genera encompass the house snakes collectively. And so we had a listener reach out through um, Instagram, I think it was, and said, yo, we want a house snake episode. So we couldn't think of anybody better to have on the show than April. So April, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming Thanks, on. guys. Uh, it's an honor to be here. All righty. So... One thing that is blissfully apparent, or is going to become blissfully apparent if you're listening to this, is that, um, A, Clint has not kept house snakes before (laughs) in any kind of (laughs) numbers, so he doesn't have much experience with this group. And then I consider house snakes, uh, Lamprophit, or sorry, Boadon, not, not the Auroras. There are two snakes that everybody talks about that are so easy to keep that thoroughly thrashed my ass and <laughs> just completely took any ego I had away from me. And one of those were, of course, the house snakes. So this is going to be a, an episode that I'm going to be listening to because <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do a redemption tour with these things at some point <laughs> in my life. But I got a whole bunch of them. They wouldn't eat. Um, then one would eat. Then one would eat. Then it died. And I was just like, okay, I'm done. Like, I can't, I can't do this. I gave them to one of my former students. Alec, and then he took the damn things. They ate immediately, and then they bred for him like two months later. And now he has twenty of these, twenty to thirty of these. And I think he said that they bred again this year. So, uh, yeah. So that. So I should not be talking about this group. So, um, April, if you wouldn't mind just introducing the listeners to some of the more common um, species that are available in herpetoculture today. Just kind of like a, a, a quick breakdown of what they might find if they go to the local show, get online, you know, all that jazz. Well, um, I guess the first one I would probably bring up is going to be your black house snake. Um, they are very commonly imported from Africa. A lot of times they do come in parasitized. A lot of times they do have these kind of problems. Uh, it's partially why they're it's so important to breed them in captivity um, because they, they, those parasites that they can come in with. um, I think that's something that, you know, uh, a a lot of keepers don't really realize because the colubrid type snakes don't typically come in with the same kind of problems as the African land profit type snakes do and uh, different care too, different care entirely. Like um, African snakes, you know, have much higher heat requirements than say your colubrids do. So a lot of times I think people, get them mixed up, um, you know, just, just from the generalizations and not having a, a strong education base and what they are um, and, and how to take care of them and, and that, in that sense. Uh, so yeah, definitely black house snakes definitely are, are very common uh, at shows and things of that nature, even though they're not always like commonly available captive form. Uh, the Togo stripe, same exact situation. Uh, they're, brown and they have typically a yellow stripe that runs down the length of the body. Um, and that, that's another one that's really common. Uh, as far as what's most commonly captive bred and that you would find would definitely be uh, the cape house snake. Um, 
which is the biggest of, of that uh, group. And uh, they're also very uh, calm and gentle and, and, uh, and pretty easy to, uh, very, very easy to take care of. If you can take care of a ball python, you can take care of a Cape house snake. They're literally from the same areas and have the same care. So um, it's a little bit different uh, than your typical uh, colubrid type animal. But uh, yeah, those are definitely, I would say, the three that are the most common, although there are several other species with different care in different uh, areas of Africa that they come from and different taxonomy. Um, so they're, they're, they're all a little bit different, but, but definitely those three would be the most common. Yeah. And, and for the... the Zach, was it Cape? Yeah, was it, it was, was it Cape that you had? Yeah, I don't think it was Cape because she said that you had to have a heartbeat to keep those alive. And I would like to uh, that's what I was going to say, because it was when she said, if you could keep a ball python, you could keep them. I was like, please, Zach, tell me it was Kate that yeah. you had. Well, so, I don't capes think. being from South Africa. In my heart of hearts, I'm going to say it was Aren't that. necessarily imported anymore. Uh, South Africa has its own laws about how they mm-hmm. export and they're not allowing wild caught animals to be exported from South Africa anymore. So odds are, if you have found the Cape house snake here in the U S it's going to be captive born and you're not going to have any of those issues that you might have with say a black house snake or a Togo stripe. Um, and you know, the Togo stripes and black house snakes can be just as calm and just as, as easy to, to work with. It's just that, kind of have to overcome some of those uh, wild-caught issues first um, if you're getting them wild-caught. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it has definitely gotten more popular over the last, I would say, five years especially, um, to have captive breeders of them, especially as uh, the morphs were made available from overseas and got into the U.S. I think that definitely helped um, get a little bit more exposure uh, for them, for sure. Yes. And and the Cape mm-hmm. house snake is Boadon capensis, yeah. mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, that would be it. And then the black house snake and the Togo stripe, are those both um, Boadon falgonosis? Technically, but or, they shouldn't be. verdicts out currently that? So okay, taxonomy yeah. and... and- that so whole it, family is a mess. It's constantly under revision. It just went over yes. under revision last month. Um, it went under revision uh, back in 2021. Uh, also, it, it's kind of a, it's something that they keep trying to work out and they study it. And as, as the more they study it, the more they, they are putting things in place. But a lot of these species um, either are sharing scientific names that they shouldn't or um, are placed in the wrong places. Uh, more recently, we had several families of Lamprophidae that got removed from the family group and made into their own families, but then just recently last month got put back into Lamprophidae. So it's a mess. It really is. Um, and it's kind of created a different culture in the house snake community too, because for example, certain colubrids, you would never hybridize them. That would be just taboo to the 10th. Whereas in house snakes, because the taxonomy is constantly moving around, uh, a lot of things that originally weren't considered hybrids are now considered hybrids, even, and they were, you know, purebred or, or what have you for a long time. For example, the butter morph, which is 
gorgeous uh, neon, neon yellow with green tinges. It's beautiful. Uh, originally wasn't considered a hybrid because uh, the greenhouse snake wasn't considered a separate species from, say, you know, the Cape house snake. So when they crossed them, it wasn't a taboo thing. Uh, so it's definitely a different culture um, entirely. Uh, the family of house snake keepers, if you will, uh, definitely have kind of different rules of engagement, um, a little bit less, I hate to say it, but kind of less snobby, if you will. <laughs> I hate to say that, uh, but you know how the industry works, you know, it, it has a little bit less of that. And you'll find that people that come from, say, like the ball python uh, markets or, or from specifically like corn snake breeders or stuff, they'll they'll kind of come in and they'll bring that with them into, say, uh, the house snake community. And, and we're like, no, we don't do that here. Like, that's that's not something we do. And that's because the taxonomy is such a mess and it's constantly under revision. And then me personally, I, I keep an eye on that a lot. Um, just I don't know. It's just kind of an obsession of mine to understand the whole, everything there's to know about it. I'm a little ADD like that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's definitely um, needs more work than I'd say a lot of, um, a lot of species of snakes. Mm -hmm. As a North American rat snake breeder, I feel your pain. Yeah. Oh, I bet you do. I completely get where you're coming from with it. Yeah. Oh, yes. So it's and specifically black rat snakes. Mm. I mean, that's now all over the place. So uh, when you're talking about the taxonomy, taxonomy moving one way, moving the other, what's what's across, what's not across. Oh, yes, I completely understand where you're coming from on that. Yeah, I, I worked in, I, you know, I've been around for a very long time, pretty much my whole life, and uh, so I've I've worked. Well, well, actually. On that note, one of the questions we have is, "What's your start?" How did you um, get actually, into this? when I was very, very young, um, <laughs> I used to catch garter snakes off of the banks of the Nisqually Valley River, which is located in Washington. Uh, my father lives there, and so I was very tiny when I started, and nobody taught me to be afraid of snakes, um, which, as educators, we all know that that's kind of how that happens. Um, People are afraid of snakes because they're taught to be. So I didn't, um, I didn't experience that. I wasn't taught that, if you will. So it was always a part of my life, even when I was really young. Um, I did end up going to college, and I did end up, you know, uh, studying a few things: veterinary medicine, uh, human services psychology, a few things that kind of helped me develop to what I am now. But uh, it was kind of always the plan to just breed snakes for a living and it came to fruition. Um, originally I did breed bell pythons and corn snakes and, uh, I even bred Burmese pythons for uh, a short period of time there and before they were made illegal and all that, which was lame. Um, but we won't get into that, but, uh, yeah. So like I, I kind of do have a pretty well-rounded background, um, in, in other reptiles too, but you know, the house snake was the first uh, snake that I actually, the black house snake specifically uh, created a, a project line for where I, I bred towards a specific trait over several generations to create something that uh, I couldn't find. And I still to this day uh, cannot find 
uh, specific species that lives in a restricted area that um, pretty much nobody has ever really been able to get a hold of um, that I fell in love with, which was Boeden olivicus, um, which is a gorgeous blue uh, green snake with bright red eyes. And um, I've always wanted one, but I never could get one. So I, uh, I bred black house snakes to make them look like it. And now it's its own project line, which is, I think it's pretty cool just to create something out of nothing yeah. there. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. So long, long time. Um, so is that, I'm sorry. Is that what kind of moved you to, to colubrids as a whole? I mean, it sounds like you had a pretty broad kind of spectrum there. What, what brought it so focused, um, you know, focused it down to colubrids and then I guess specifically house. Snakes. I, uh, <laughs> I've always had the house snakes. It's just kind of, um, uh, I didn't think at first that I could uh, support a family on just specifically house snakes. And a lot of people, you know, reinforce that idea. Um, when I actually used to wholesale um, <laughs> the black house snake out to a lot of like the imported stuff that uh, the importers and stuff that wanted captive born ones. A lot of people have actually bought snakes from me from easily over a decade ago that they had no idea because I used to, I used to just breed so many of them and then wholesale them off to like, say the bells of rec Mart, uh, back when that was a thing I produced for them. I produced for, you know, like strictly reptiles here in Florida, um, like just kind of various things. So I, I never really like put myself out there as a, as a separate individual, um, because I was just kind of wholesaling for a really long time. But, um, but yeah, I've, I've just been kind of back here <laughs> in the background. Uh, and it wasn't really until about five years ago that I really was like on my own and just kind of decided to go into that retail market as I built a collection of morphs and things. And I, I probably do have, and I, I don't mean to boast or nothing, but I probably do have the most no. diverse collection of house snakes in the world. Um, just, I, there's only one morph that I know of that I don't currently have. And that's because nobody has it <laughs> um, except for the original founder who lives in South Africa, who believe me, I have begged and pleaded, uh, with many times, <laughs> but, uh, but he is just not, not given up, um, any of those. So, but eventually I'm sure we will get there, um, to that point. But um, probably not the largest number of them, but certainly, uh, yeah, probably the most diverse, um, which is kind of cool in its own uh, sense of things. It can get a little complicated, um, especially because like because of the taxonomy mess, like I did a lot of test pairings where I was trying to figure out what was related to what because we just didn't have that science to like really work through that. So a lot of. Um, things that I know about house snakes didn't actually even come from like, say research gate and the places that one would usually expect it. It kind of came from like, okay, if we put these two together and we can make them hybridize, then what does that say? What does this mean? You know, uh, which I did a lot of that in uh, 2019, a, a lot of um, test pairings between various things to see what would work together and what doesn't. Um, so, you know, I've, definitely contributed i think to the to the hobby of the house snake specifically although i, I certainly have my um my role models and, and things of that nature too um one of my 
favorite people uh, of House Snakes is Rolf Dennison of Ultimate Exotics. He's in South Africa, and he's kind of one of my mentors, and I've always had an enormous amount of respect for him. Um, Nicole and Warren Klein also came from South Africa, and I have a lot of respect for them. Um, we unfortunately had a falling out, but um, not not to say that you know they didn't have a significant influence over over me specifically. Um, so yeah, there, there's I'm definitely not the only one. I get that a lot, like oh, like the, the only person or, or whatever. It's just that um, I think because the others are in Africa, <laughs> it's a little bit harder to you know get a hold of them. <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah. So what does your collection look like now? Well, obviously we're focusing on the house snakes for the episode, mm-hmm. but um, you rattled off quite a few species that kind of have, I guess the best way to say it is niche followings. Mm-hmm. And, and I actually have a couple of critters you mentioned. I, I, I view them the opposite of how I view house snakes. I've had success with them, but just, if you wouldn't mind letting us all know, like, numbers in the collection and then what species you, you have. In your oh, room. boy. Um, well, last time I actually took the count of the numbers in the collection, there was 456. Um, but that fluctuates a mm-hmm. lot, especially during, like, hatching seasons. So, like, on a hatching season, if I have, like, all of the baby racks full, I could have up to almost a 1,000. Um, so th- it's definitely a larger collection mm-hmm. than... A standard hobbyist, but you got to keep in mind I support my entire household on just breeding snakes. Um, yeah, so you kind of do have to have a few <laughs> at that point. Um, so <laughs> um, let me think. I have forty-eight uh, breeding females of file snake, specifically the cross-eye file snake. I don't work in the cape. Uh, there's reasons for that, but you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I do enjoy the cross-eye file snake a lot. Uh, I have six, and only six, uh, Egyptian false cobra females that I work through. Um, They're actually a good bit more venomous than people realize. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, A lot of... Yeah, can we talk about those for one second? So, one thing that's really funny is they have their false cobras. Mm -hmm. And the snake that is my favorite is the false water Totally different animal. (laughs) And if you... Well, yeah, and it's really kind of, I don't know what the word is, because I, I, I don't want to sound snotty mm-hmm. either, but you'll be on you know, that those groups, and the False Water Cobra community is wonderful. Like, they're very um, inviting. There's really not any ego there. I, that might be just as much a reason why they're my focal species, is the people that work with them have a tendency to just be chilled, laid-back mm-hmm. people. But every about every month or two in, in our two Facebook groups, someone will go like, "Look at this morph I got!" and it's a false Egyptian false mm-hmm. cobra, and they usually are like holding it in their hand, and somebody invariably says like, "Put that down." <laughs> that that could end badly, <laughs> um, and that is not a false. Yeah. Cobra. So, so here's things yeah. to so know anyway. about the EFC, uh, which is a land profit snake. Um, first of all, if you are handling an EFC, that's a problem. EFCs need to be kept at about 115 yep. degrees. They are desert animals. They cannot handle being cold for very long. They will get respiratory infections very quickly. They will get all sorts of lacrimal duct problems. Uh, 
if you're handling it and it's being calm, that is because it is too cold. Um, people should not be handling yeah. EFC. I'm not trying to rag on anybody. I'm just sharing what I know from breeding them. Um, it's just not something that you want to do. Two, the venom is a lot stronger than what you will Google. Um, an EFC's venom will unmake your day. And I can say from experience, um, because I was one of those um, more cocky people that thought, oh, it's a rear fang. No big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. Um, we're talking full system evacuate from both ends, if you get what I'm saying. Uh, stomach cramps, swelling to the nearest mm-hmm. joint, uh, severe like fever-like symptoms. Um, I wasn't hospitalized, uh, but I think for some people it may have been prudent. Um, that's not, they have very, very large back fangs. The The rear fang is actually quite mobile and it's very big. Um, so it's not like it has to chew on you in order to get to you. In fact, uh, how it ended up getting me was, um, and another neat thing about them is they're, they're den now. They they live together, they're communal um, in the wild, mm-hmm. which not a lot of snakes are that way. Um, and they will protect each other. So that's kind of neat. Um, I think a lot of times people keep them singly and don't realize that. And that leads to um, them. I, I think they get what I would call like cobra depression. I don't know if you've ever, if anybody here has kept like the cobra, <laughs> but they... If you mm-hmm. ever like cut the venom glands off of a cobra, it, it like sinks into this like what I could only describe as the depression. They don't want to eat, they don't want to move around, they don't really want to shed their own skin. It's kind of sad, it really is. Um, and I find the same with like EFC. So I, I think that EFCs really need um, a lot more of a following that's more dedicated to what they really need. And I think a lot of people get into EFC because mm-hmm. they're trying to actually get into false water cobra which is a very cool snake. I have n- nothing but love for, for the false water cobra. It's not in my particular niche. Good. <laughs> um, so I haven't kept them myself. Um, but I can say that the type of people that could keep, like, say, the false water cobra are probably the same, uh, but just that there's a lot more risk involved with an EFC. It's, some, it's one of those snakes that even though... Right now, if you Google it, it'll say venom potency unknown and, and whatnot, or mild venom, it's rear fang. That has not been the case for every EFC owner that I've known that has actually been tagged by one. So I think that uh, in time will we'll get a little bit more uh, commonly known. But yeah, they're, they're definitely not the same thing. Uh, EFC get to about two feet and false water cobra are much bigger and and seem to be uh i haven't personally kept them but they seem to be pretty uh pretty chill you know they seem to be pretty calm whereas they are chill once they yeah whereas the esc is is never <laughs> going to be an animal that you're going to play with it's a you you watch me from the behind the glass but you you don't mess with mm-hmm. them um it's yeah sure definitely different and so what 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 other species do you have? Uh, I work in the uh, cross-eye file snake. That's a really uh, a pretty cool one. I have several generations yeah, now cool. of the cross-eye file snake. I have two lines that I've bred towards different colors. I have a pink line that has gotten rather fuchsia in this very, you know, relatively short span of time. Who's that? <laughs> 
Um, and then, uh, not sure. And then I have a purple line, which I've read to be darker. I also um, took in a um, a black one that was a wild caught uh, file snake that had black everything, black scales, black everything, black tongue. So I assume it's probably some form of uh, exanthism or something of that nature, um, which I was able to breed after ex- a lot of medical intervention for parasites and things of that nature. Uh, file snakes are kind of dangerous when it comes to parasites. Unfortunately, they um, they can contract because of their diet being so varied out in the wild. They are oftentimes eating a, a type of slug that's an intermediary host for uh, the African lung fluke, which is zoonotic, meaning it transfers to humans. Um, people, yeah. Ew. And the uh, the treatment for that is actually fairly dangerous um, to the snake. It, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, this will treat, this will kill the fluke and this will kill the snake. It's very close. Um, yeah. And then even then you have kind of another problem with it, which is where, okay, so say you, you were able to administer the oral medication. Well, if it does its job, it's going to kill the fluke, right? But then you have this lung worm sitting in the lung and just rotting dead. So the way that they're treated is um, you have to get a bronchioscopy, which is a, uh, a small camera under anesthesia, goes in there with a set of tools and literally manually removes it from the lung, which is very expensive. Um, and a lot of people gotcha. aren't going to be willing to pay a veterinarian $1,000 to do that. Um, so we try to really push the captive born file snakes as much as possible um, because they just don't have that exposure. So they don't have that problem. So then they don't have that um, kind of issue. And I've actually contracted the lung fluke myself um, just in the course of treating hundreds of them. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. Yeah. Me personally. Yeah. I have had it. Um, I actually was diagnosed with COPD. Uh, so no doctor here in the uh-huh. United States is going to go, oh, let's test for an African lungworm. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was an interesting experience for sure because I had caught it. Um, no commercially, like commonly done um, antiparasitic, you know, like your panicure and your flagell and whatnot, do not touch this parasite. So even when people bring them in and they shotgun treat them with it, it doesn't touch it at all. It's it literally has to be done with an entirely separate medication. Praziquinil um, is the treatment of choice for flukes, um, but it is very very temperamental, like I explained earlier. Um, and uh, so I had caught it and I had developed a cough and some fatigue and whatnot. Eventually, um, because I have veterinary training, I ran a fecal on myself. And that is how I found out that I had contracted it. Um, so for a few months, I thought I had COPD when in reality I was actually parasitized. Um, and that's that's kind of why I, I tend to spread that information with people is because it, it, it wasn't really until I was like coughing blood that I realized that um, something was very wrong there. And... Uh, I, I don't blame the doctor, obviously, for not knowing that. That was definitely my fault. Um, but, uh, yeah, it took some doing. Uh, fortunately, in humans, because it's such a small thing, wow. you know, it, it's it's something you can live with for the rest of your days, and it wouldn't really affect your health too much. Um, because I am treating a lot of wild-caught file snakes, it's kind of my mission, if you will, to kind of fix that, um, that... Uh, I, I definitely had some exposure somewhere there. And 
and I got it. But um, not everyone comes in with it, obviously. Um, but uh, but yeah, I did did have that fun little tidbit of my uh, my past histories. Well, let's yeah, let's jump to the house sure snakes. house snakes. Human fecals. Wasn't expecting that. Tonight. Yeah, sorry. Just <laughs> no, no. Educating the masses. They're not funny, yeah. but you know what I mean. And then it, it, I can hear, I can hear Mr. Most. So this is for you, Matt, because I know you're going to listen. Uh, we, we do not, and and I'm not like going against what mm-hmm. you said, April. But make sure you take your snakes to the veterinarian. We do not want people cowboy veterinarian in the vet in their. Uh, Oh, yeah. With drugs they buy off well, the internet. It won't work so, either. By all means, I mean, it, it really. Yeah. The, the vet. Yeah, is it really does require. To remove the damn flute. That so. to happen. So. Yeah. You, you can't just shotgun that one. You really yes, can't. Yes. Um, I mean, you shouldn't be shotgunning anything. Okay. But. So. But it's especially. It's just not no. even going to work no matter how you play it. Um, so. So, yeah, on that one. But, uh, yeah, back to house snakes. So, with. Yeah. House snakes. Jumping into house mm-hmm. snakes. Um, we have a list, our standard list of questions, because kind of the, the point of this is just to have a conversation sure. about them. So let's first lead off with um, enclosure designs. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, obviously, April is a breeder. And some of you have listening have no intentions of breeding. You just have pets. So when it comes to the way breeders maintain their animals versus keepers... It can be a little bit different. And so, April, when you give your kind of spiel as to how to keep things, if you could kind of talk to those two audiences, that would be fantastic. But um, enclosures, what do you keep your Boadon in from the time they hatch until they reach adulthood? Um, So I obviously work with vision racks. Um, I love them. They're uh, it's it's easy. They're modular. Um, I actually am. The type that likes enrichment, um, I think all of the land profit snakes really benefit from it, um, and it's it doesn't have to be anything particularly fancy. I I give them humidides and I give them stuff to um, kind of like netting stuff to like mess with. Um, they're very intelligent snakes, and I think that it just kind of prevents them from getting what I would call like depression, if you will, in snakes. Um, so. I know of many ways that it is done and I definitely do not, um, there's no, no hate on any method. I know people that keep them in bioactive enclosures that are huge and lots of everything to do. I know that they can be successfully kept in fairly small, uh, rack enclosures. And, and I guess that really depends on how you feel about, you know, what you are personally doing and what you, what you have the space to do and what you have um, going on. Um, obviously I do keep mine in racks. Uh, my hatchlings, because they are so tiny, very, very, very tiny, smaller than your corn snake hatchling, yeah. very, very small, um, are kept in uh, basically a uh, kind of like a black bento box. Um, it's about, you know, 11 inches long and about uh, seven inches wide and about four inches hot, tall. Um, but that does, you know, have a moss hide, a, a water bowl that has a hide underneath. And um, I keep everything on cocoa chip. I just love it. It's so diverse. I can do anything across every species I work in, except for the EFC, uh, because it's just a little too humid for that. But, um, but uh, yeah, and, and just, you know, standard kind of, if you've worked in other snakes, you know, water bowl hide, the standard setup. 
Um, it's it's not hard, especially for Cape Enzas because they're so forgiving. Um, they make a great first snake. Like if you, like I said, if you've kept a ball, you can keep a, a cape um, easily. And capes are the ones with all of the morphs. So if you're getting one that's colored and pretty, it's going to be a cape or a hybrid of a cape and something else. Um, so yeah, uh, that's that's kind of where it starts. You can go. I mean, you can go as big as you want. Um, most of my adults are in either V thirty five, which is this guy right back here, um, or V seventy if it's a particularly like for females and stuff. Um, especially the file snakes, they they kind of get a little bit bigger, so they kind of need a little bit bigger of a space. Um, as far as what that translates to for. Um, for non-rack keepers, um, that's about 24 by 18 for V35. That would be like your adult males. Um, I think that works out to roughly a 10-gallon tank. It might be a little bit bigger. I'm not really sure with fish tanks. Unfortunately, it's it's just been a really long time um, yeah. since I've had any to really like work that math out. Um, but roughly 18 inches by 24 inches is, is solid. And uh, for like say for like file snakes, which get a little bit bigger, you know, that's about three feet by 18 inches. Um, so not terribly large of enclosure space, pretty standard for like colubrid type animals. Um, pretty standard for that. Uh, heating is definitely different. Um, so they're African, basically, um, the standard African kind of temps, you know, you want about 88, 90 on one side and basically whatever it falls to on the other side is going to work out if, especially if you're keeping your room at room temp, um, then you're going to be like roughly 80 on one side and like roughly 90 on the other. And that'll be great. Um, they're not very, uh, temperamental about that. Uh, black house snakes specifically tend to be a little bit more fussy about their humidity than, than any other species I've worked in. And I think that's just because where they're collected from has a much higher, like, um, rainy season that they go through. Um, and mm -hmm. that's actually another thing. Like you don't cycle land profit snakes, like you would do colubrid snakes where you cool them intensely and all that. It's more about light cycles, um, and like humidity. That's actually how I breed file snakes specifically is, uh, here in Florida, we have like a, a rainy season where, uh, we get hurricanes and thunderstorms and the barometric pressure gets really high. And I love to do my pairs, my pairing for file snakes during that season, because that's exactly what they're going through out in Africa. That's, and that seems to be a very successful way to do it. Um, uh, if, if anybody wanted to know, I know that breeding of file snakes is not entirely, uh, common knowledge for people, but that's, that's the best way in my experience so far, um, to get them to do that. Um, is definitely working around that. Uh, but you don't have to brumate them down. They will go off feed. It's just something that they do for that time period. Um, so, um, you know, they will kind of have, you will go through those cycles. Uh, for like house snakes, I have four quarters. So every four months I breed a different whole rack. Um, and that that's actually because... I have a little bit of a difficulty finding red hot newborn pinky mice, which I need for the babies um, because they're so tiny. So you're talking about the like super. Yeah. Tall. The super tiny yeah, guys, pinks. especially for the dwarf right. lineatus, which is yes. a very small snake. It, it kind of feels like doing a bonsai tree when you're <laughs> working with them because they're so tiny. Um, they're like literally like two grams. Like it's a very, very small animal. 
Um, so you, you kind of have to work around what you have for rodents for that. Um, and because I don't breed my own rodents, uh, myself, at least at this point in time, I, I do intend to later, but it's just a lot, a lot of work. And I just really would rather use the space for my own snake projects than trying to dedicate that much space for rodents. So I kind of have to work with the available resources of rodents for that. And so I breed house snakes quarterly and file snakes and everybody else on a yearly cycle. Um, so that way I have, I have house snakes year round and, um, I, I do tend to run out of file snakes pretty quick as soon as they're hatched. Um, so, so yeah. So we're going to circle mm-hmm. back sure. to breeding in a second. Cause I want to hammer that uh, with the house snakes particularly, but with the enclosure. Mm-hmm. So substrate wise, you mentioned the yeah, cocoa chip um, is, is this a, a thick layer or just a layer? Like, do they use the substrate as a refugia where they burrow down into it? Or is it more of a, we're just putting substrate there and they're kind of on top of it and they defecate and you spot. Clean yeah. And, it's, you know, it's kind of more that. of a, you know, they, you spot clean and all of that. Um, file snakes tend to like to hide in whatever you can give them to hide in. Uh, house snakes will be out and greet you. Um, which is pretty cool. Um, I found a lot of times that my, uh, my, my house snakes will be in their humid hides, which is basically just, um, that same box I was telling you about, about the, the babies. I also use those and I fill them with sphagnum moss and, uh, you know, kind of cut a hole in the side and put those in the adult enclosures and, and they love being in there too. Um, you, so you'll find them kind of in various places, depending on what they need. And that's, that's exactly how it should be. Obviously. I mean, you want them to have the ability to thermoregulate and, and do as they please. Um, so yeah, uh, I love cocoa chip. Uh, it's, it's really easy to clean. Um, if they knock over their water bowls or something, they're not really sitting in it because it's so thatched that they're kind of sitting on top of mm-hmm. it, which is really nice. Um, and it doesn't mold as easily as other things. Um, for file snakes, it's absolutely imperative that they're not really kept on anything dusty. Um, every time that I've been like called out to deal with a medical issue with a file snake that wasn't directly parasite related, it was because they were being kept on like say Aspen shaving something with a lot of dust to it. And they have these enormous nostrils that get that collect that. And then, you know, they get lacrimal duct infections and things of that nature. So, um, so, but house snakes specifically aren't really prone to that, um, as much, but, um, like black house snakes can be because of their higher, you know, humidity needs than, say others. And I'm not knocking on anybody that keeps their black house snakes on, on wood shavings. I know that that's done. Um, I don't find that they're as vibrant. I don't find that they have that. They have a gorgeous blue shine to them. Um, and that tends to go away when they're kept drier. And I just think that all those things kind of in conjunction kind of lead to the, the concept that maybe it's a superior method for me, at least as a professional breeder to keep them that way. Um, but yeah, cool. This right here, that this is the kind of information that is just fantastic to hear, uh, because this is not the kind of thing that you're going to hear in any scientific book. You're not going to read it out there. This is from hands-on, you know, daily observations, yeah. you know, on keeping. So that was uh, that was an excellent piece there. Well, thank and you. <laughs> I didn't know that. But that's something I never yeah. really thought about. So that was that was very interesting, April. Thank you. Of course. Yeah, and. When it comes to stuff in in the tub in the in the vivarium, I take it like cork flats and 
cork tubes. Oh, sure, sure. PVC tubes. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm not hearing that they're very picky. So as long as they have something to yeah. hide it, or do they like hides that, that where they can kind of squish themselves yeah, in? Yeah, they prefer to be tightly like a lot um, of snakes. bound, just like other yeah, snakes do. Um, I give them a range of options. And, and what's really interesting, I think, about land profit snakes specifically, too, is that they a lot of them are individuals. Like when I used to work with... Um, like yeah. corn snakes, it was kind of always the same personality, if you will. Whereas, um, like house snakes can all be different. Um, and then I noticed that certain personalities mm-hmm. run in lines too. Um, just from several generations worth yes. of breeding, I've noticed that, you know, some lines tend to be kind of more flighty and get away from you. Um, some lines tend to be like, even as babies where they're just going to want to sit and wrap in your fingers and just be like ball Python, like I'm just sitting here. Um, so temperament is also something that uh, we specifically breed towards um, in, in land profit snakes, at least in my, my own collection, because it does seem to have some sort of component that passes on, which is I think pretty cool. Um, just they're a very smart snake. Yeah, no, that's very um, cool compared to some of the ones that I've worked in, not ragging on any of the others, obviously uh, all snakes are beneficial to mankind and all snakes, you know, have their niche and that that's great. But I think from a, um, just a, a hobbyist standpoint, I think they make great pets just because you, you never know what you're going to get. And especially like say the black house snakes that can change colors dramatically. It's kind of like getting a new snake all the time because you never know what it's going to look like because they can like, just entirely shift color. Like um, sometimes you'll have a black house snake and it'll be pitch black. Sometimes it'll be like a very light beige with that blue shine over top. It almost looks teal. And you're like, who's this, you know? Um, so it's, it's just really fun. You know, it's really different experience than I think a lot of types of snakes are. So onto a somewhat controversial Ooh. husbandry um, aspect when it comes to snakes, I don't think it's controversial, but a lot of people do, which is lighting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you kind of always hear this, that snakes don't need mm-hmm. UVB, uh, and there's definite truth to that, and at the same time, not. I was, I'm scientist caps on now, so if you heard me say that there's truth to that, please calm down if you're a UVB file. Um <laughs> Because I also think that it's nothing but a benefit when when given to them in the right way. I can flat out tell you that you're like the um, the Egyptian false corals almost certainly are going to benefit oh, from blazing UVB since mm-hmm. they're so diurnal and they're out during the day. You know, so there's that. But lighting wise, for just boadon specifically, uh, you want to talk about that? Sure. Like if you give them a for somebody that just has a pet, will they use a basking light or do they? not really do that they're more crepuscular like just kind of what's what's their so they are crepuscular so dawn and dusk is their you know typical active periods of time um that means that they're not going to be out getting a lot of that you know blazing sun um as far as like say your cape house snake specifically house snakes other land prophets are more dineural so that would be a separate conversation um like, like you mentioned, the EFC, I definitely keep UVB on my EFC, but I do not keep UVB on my um, house snakes. Um, one, honestly, it's kind of tricky. Uh, heat lamps in general, I tend to be a little bit wary of because I've seen a lot of like 
fires <laughs> that are caused by them. And that, <laughs> that makes me nervous. Just, you know, seeing people's whole collections just die and stuff. It's just utterly heartbreaking for me um, to just even know that that exists. And um, so that, that for one is a little bit tricky. Um, just the heat lamp concept. Um, as far as do I think they benefit from it? I think that's going to be very species specific. Um, and I'm, I'm going to put on the science cap here, too. Um, I am a woman of science. I, I love research. Um, that's my kind of my religion almost is, you know, the scientific method. And I think a lot of people have have strong feelings uh, one way or another on that. And they are totally entitled to that. But I think if we're going to change the hearts and minds of people on, to go one way or another, we really just don't have the science. And what I mean by that is um, like, for example, there was recently a thing about how, you know, ball pythons need UVB because their brain changes when they're kept in racks and, and all this. And when I go to look for the references for that, all of the references are referencing studies that are done on very limited animals that are not ball pythons. So like, for example, a lot of those studies were done on say corn snakes Corn snakes are dineural. They're out during the day. They have evolved to be able to use those resources. We don't really get to apply that to a separate species that's going to live in termite mounds its entire life and never really be exposed to the open like sunlight like that. You know what I mean? I just feel like in order for us to really come to a solid conclusion on one way or the other, and I, I, like I said, I, I'm kind of a both on this. Um, we really need a more scientific background than what we currently have. Because right now what we have is just a conglomerate mush of various different species, of various different like researches, studies that don't really have a very large sample size if you really look into them. And it's just not the, the solid level of science that we need to really say one way or another. Um, but I think... See, that's what my lab's for. But I... That's what we're doing at West yeah. Liberty. Is, is just but that. I think that, and, and what's been very interesting, if we're going to attach it to any we'll, species, we should keep some things in mind about that mm -hmm. species. For example, like the ball python yeah. thing. Is it likely that they absolutely need UVB? Well, do they live where they're going to get exposed to it? You know, it's kind of well, a logical. But the conclusion. thing with the ball pythons is they do live where the UVB. You're right. I mean, they will like, come out the, that the, way. The, the whole termite mound argument has kind of been disproven in the scientific community. Right. When you put transmitters in ball pythons and you track them around, you find out that they are actually well, out yeah, of the mound. Some of the time, for sure. They're, they're chasing a thermal window. So they're mm -hmm. out in the morning and they're out in the evening. Right. And then during the day, they're in the mound. And then that's when the collectors are collecting them. Right. Which is why we get the, they're only in the termite mound, you know, conversation all the time. Right, right. Um, and I don't mean to like... Oh, no, 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 no. Discrediting no. what you're saying. I'm just simply saying that... I'm like, just using that as an example know, it, for, they're, they're, you know, various things. Yeah. Um, but the problem is when people take that, and I'm this is where, you know, we're totally in alignment, and they they, they, they see like one or, two argue, one or two videos of like a ball python up in a tree, which they mm -hmm. do, because there's thousands of them across Africa, you're going to have individual variation like what you're talking about and you will occasionally find a ball python up in a tree but when you find a single ball python up in a tree and it makes its way onto youtube that doesn't mean that we now have to keep them like they're freaking spoloides which is like living in the canopy right. of 
the jungle. It, it's it. I, I just think one of the issues with herpetoculture is we go to these extremes. We we have limited observation, like what you're saying, and then we go to a complete dogma shift. Yeah. And we just need to work right, on making right. those observations much more. Like, let's wait till we have the twentieth observation of the ball pythons <laughs> right. the tree to then say yeah. they're semi arboreal. I, I think. <laughs> like, I think so. it's kind of one of those things that, um, as long as people aren't trying to use limited science to confirm a bias. Um, it, it, it's something that we should all look at, um, you know, for sure. Uh, but is it something that we need to get really worked up about and, you know, start bashing into each other over it? We just don't have that level of science, you know, uh, obviously there's a lot of, a lot of people who for several decades now have kept ball pythons and racks and other animals and racks and, you know, that had no exposure and, and I'm not saying that bare minimum is should be strived for, but obviously they have been surviving, whereas other animals really do need that UVB. They really do need those things. And um, and you can see that because if they don't get it, then, you know, they they perish. Um, so I think it's kind of one of those things that we, we got to look individually, species by species on, and not so much a um, look at everything as a conglomerate whole and say, oh, this is the only way it can be done for, and I think that that doesn't really work for most people. Um, you know, some people really have to keep their animals in like say ambient temps versus having like a, you know, back to front grade, you know, kind of thing, which, you know, it is what it is on that. But, uh, but you know, it, it's going to yeah. be kind of up to the individual keeper as far as what they're capable of doing and, you know, what's going to work uh, for them. For me personally, I would love to be able to put all 400 snakes here on huge, you know, big zoo type enclosures and with all of the trimmings and fixings and, and whatnot. And I would I say that they have a difference. I'm not really sure because I've I've been able to, you know, provide enrichment even in the limited space that, you know, that they do have. Um, so I'm not really sure what I would expect to see differently if given a lot more uh, space, but uh, but it is a it's a definitely an interesting question. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's segue to mm-hmm. breeding. Um, with, you mentioned how they don't need to be cooled per se. Uh, talk a little bit about what like the cycle looks like for these snakes. Um, as a professional breeder or as a hobbyist, because they're kind of going to be different. As a hobbyist. Um, Okay. People listening that don't have 400. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so for those that are, um, maybe not having to, to keep as intensive track of everything, uh, to create as much production as say someone like me is required to do, um, if you're not supporting a household, <laughs> then it's a little bit easier. Um, so as far as breeding goes, there's really not too terrible much that you need to do to get house snakes to breed. It's kind of one of their things that they're known for is being prolific. They're not as prolific as people uh, will try to tell you. They're not going to clutch six times on you. You're not going to have a thousand babies and be overrun. 
uh, that's that's just really not how it works. Um, you, you read a lot of that. You'll see that on 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 Google. Um, I think that's a lot of regurgitation, not necessarily the truth. If that was the case, I could make a lot more than I do. <laughs> but um, it's it's more like they will clutch maybe two to three times. Um, and the more that they clutch, you don't actually want that. And that's because they will have tiny babies. And one thing that is really unique about house snakes, just another one of those things that comes with experience that I'll just share with you guys. You really don't want to breed them early. You really want to be patient. Um, Mm -hmm. I have found that when you breed a female at a younger age, she will have smaller babies for the rest of her life. Even when she gets bigger. Mm. For some reason, it's kind of like it sets it at that size with this clutch size, and those babies will be tiny. Now, that is actually a problem because if you have a clutch of, say, 11 baby house snakes, and they are all so small that even a red-hot pinky is going to be an adventure for them to try to eat, you're going to have a struggle getting them started. Whereas if you would have waited until you know, three and a half years-ish, then you're going to have a lot bigger babies and you're going to have bigger babies for life, which I think is really important to just be patient. And I know that this exists in other species too, like say ball pythons get bred really early and and that's not necessarily good for them. You can breed a house snake at a very young age, um, 18 months. If you power fed it up and got it to, you know, that kind of say you could in, say as little as 18 months do that, but you will regret it for the rest of their life. Uh, <laughs> so that's definitely something you want to wait until you're sure that they've gotten bigger. And it's kind of hard, I think, for people to imagine how big they need to be because a lot of times when they're being imported, you'll see black house snakes that'll come in and people will say they're adults when in reality they're about half the size that's required to breed. So they'll breed them at a very tiny age and then you'll see them have trouble getting them started and stuff like that. And it's not necessarily because they are inherently difficult to start. It's because they were bred very young and they then had very small babies. um, And those babies are just sized out of commercially available feed items. And then that creates problems. Whereas if you just wait, they're not. Um, Sometimes you'll get babies that um, will need gecko scenting and not, not to plug anybody's product here, um, I don't have any affiliations with them at all, but I'm really fond of gecko juice. I uh, Reptilink sells it, and I love that stuff. It's basically like geckos that they put through a strainer, <laughs> and then they have like a liquid, and you 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 know wash a pinky, you put it in, you you drop a few drops of that on it, and house snakes love that stuff, man. It's great. Um, I know that they also make like a frog one for like hognose and whatnot. And I use the frog one for the uh, Madagascar giant hognose, which is also a land prophet snake um, that I keep. Um, so, you know, there's, there's options for that. You don't, it doesn't have to be as complicated as like go out and catch a wild anole and all that stuff that people make it out to be. There are commercially available products. If you end up having one of those trickier babies, um, the majority of them will start on live pinky mice right off the bat. Um, it's it, They're not hard feeders. Um, yeah. Even like file snake babies, I've been able to start file snake babies on frozen thawed. Just 
there you go. They tend to have very good appetites, which is makes things easy for a, a commercial breeder who, you know, maybe doesn't want to spend a whole lot of time yeah. um, getting babies started every week, you know, uh, like that. So that, that's kind of interesting. Um, but I do also have a huge list of um, like, if your house snake isn't eating, there's actually um, a library on my website where I go through like all the common problems and like just solution after solution after solution. And, and that's on the website. If anybody wants to see that um, way too much to talk about in this short period could of time. You go but, over? Yeah. Could, could you go over just a couple of the common Maybe the top three reasons why your house snake temperature almost always it's almost always temperature when I when people tell me oh my house snake isn't eating or I got this house snake um, and it's not feeding but it was before um, it's almost always temperature a lot of times it's you know they they have it in a ten gallon tank and they got this overhead light and they don't actually know what temp it even is at and house snakes will go into like a shutdown mode same thing with file snakes um where if they're not getting enough heat they just don't eat and that makes sense you can't metabolize your food as a snake unless you have adequate heat so they will just stop eating um and it's it's pretty common to see people use those like little sticker thermometers you know the really cheap ones you get at like peco and whatnot and and that's just beginner stuff you know all probably went through that most of us at least um where you know you really need a temp gun they're not expensive they're at home depot for 10 bucks and you know get an accurate read of what your temp range is and and it almost it's so very common that it's temperature that it's it's literally the first thing that i say to people if they're like hey my house snake it isn't eating i'm like is it cold though uh, because it's a lot of times it is the case. Um, the other one is it might have some sort of oral. The second one that is really common is if it's wild caught, um, it might have an oral infection of some type, or it might have internal parasites. Um, uh, a lot of black house snakes will come in um, with like oral infections, and that's just from them like bashing their face into the side of bins and things that you know because they're trying to escape the situation. Importation is not a pleasant event. I think we all can agree on that. Um, and so sometimes they yeah. they really put a lot of effort into trying to get out of whatever containment they're in, and that can up their face. Um, so a lot of times, if it's not temp, you know, I'll tell people, hey, you know, take open the mouth a little and make sure there's no like pussy looking stuff going on there um typically that's going to clear up with just a q-tip i know it's kind of wild but um a lot of times if you just remove you know the pus you know that's from that um they'll heal up on its own sometimes it needs you know an antibiotic shot i know everybody says bay trail bay trail's been you know kind of getting overused and it's getting a little bit more uh more difficult it's getting a little more resistant um to that but uh, that is one method that people use uh to treat that um so a lot of times it's that i mean you wouldn't want to eat if your mouth was all messed up and you had bugs chewing on your insides either so it's a lot of times it's one of those things um so temp you know uh humidity for black house snakes tends to be one too like they're just uncomfortable and usually it's just a matter of figuring out why they're uncomfortable and then you can you know, whatever's causing that, you fix it. Um, snakes, all species that I've ever worked in, which is a lot, all have security needs. So if they're, you know, 
out and there's nowhere for them to hide, they get a little stressed out, you know. And uh, so that's another, you know, really common uh, issue. And that's that's not just house snakes. That's like every snake, really. I mean, they're not specifically difficult yeah. um, by any measure, really. It's just um, it's a lot of times heat. And I think that kind of ties back into that, like, they're not actually, like, Colubrids, and I think a lot of people think they're like a MBK, and they're supposed to be kept kind of colder. And it's not until you know they go off feed that people kind of realize that they are African. They really do need a higher heat than you know, say a, a corn snake would. And, and as soon as they correct that, you you see kind of better uh, outcomes with that. Mm-hmm. What were the temperatures again? You know, then? so much of Just- what you've described. I apologize, Zach. Um, you said earlier. Uh, when we started, you said, you know, if you can keep a ball python, you can keep a house snake. And the more you've described their care, it's like they are ball pythons. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, kind of is. Um, from the, the, yeah, yeah, the temperature, the humidity, even as you're talking about some of the ways to get babies to feed, um, you know, it, it's bump the temperature, mm-hmm. check your humidity. Um, give it, make sure that they feel secure, which like with a ball Python, that means put them in something smaller, yeah. you know, that type of thing. It's like so much of what you're saying. It's wow. These really are the colubroid version of a ball Python in terms of care. Um, so it, it's really neat. Yeah, they, they definitely are. Yeah. It's basically think of it like a ball Python in a corn snake body. It's, it's basically the same. Uh, genetics wise, it's a little different. They're pretty much all either locality or recessive uh, for for the genes, that's, um, it's a little more complicated than that, but, but as a basic, um, a general idea, yeah, they're, they're, they're more like corn snakes in that way, uh, where pretty much all of the morphs are going to be recessive. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's very African, (laughs) you know, it's very African. If you, if you can keep African snakes, that's what they are. Just, that's what it all boils down to is very, African. So, so when once you've cycled, and you put you introduce the male to the female, are these animals that have to acclimate before they actually start mating, or is it that <laughs> no, kind of classic? It's, um, it's so, for some, um, it's it's very immediate. Uh, I'll have males that will go off feed, and that's kind of how I know to you know that we're we're there. Um, they'll just kind of go off feed and you'll find male house snakes will do this really funny thing where they'll go around their bins and they'll just kind of, or they'll do it to themselves. They'll rub on themselves in circles like this. And uh, for lack of better term, they're just horny. Um, and that, and that's kind of a way that you can just, <laughs> I mean, for lack of better term, you know? Uh, and so a lot of times yeah. how you, break a male that's doing that is you just put him in with something and let him get it out of his system. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really true though. Um, so they're, they're very good breeders. Uh, that's, it's never been really a problem of like, except for hybridization, but I, I could go over that. That's actually fairly easy too. It's more of a just bait yeah. and switch situation with hybrids. Um, but uh, they're good breeders. There, there's not really a lot of, trouble getting them to do it except for mentalis spoida mentalis which is the namibian bug-eyed house snake uh they're very violent breeders um it's kind of typically uh if there's not blood involved it probably didn't get done 
uh, with those guys. So definitely a more advanced house snake, not not the level of like cape house snake where beginners are going to be into it. And you're you're not going to even get a hold of a mentalis unless you're fairly deep into the house snake community because they're very rare and they're hard to make. Um, so, but yeah, that, that's one exception. But other than that, they're, they're not cannibalistic. They're not going to eat each other, but they can really go at it. Um, especially like some males will be breeding for days. Um, and, uh, there's been times where I've had to physically remove, uh, males from their, uh, the whole rack of males from, from the other room where they could smell the females because they will just, they will do that until they have lost so much weight that it's, it's become concerning. And then, you know, so breeding wise, they're, they're easy to breed. Um, they are prone to the females can be prone to issues. Um, egg binding, I will say has been a definite problem with obese capes. Um, if, if your female is overweight and you'll know, uh, they're, because they're kind of chonky, you'll know um, if they've gotten mm-hmm. a little too big, because uh, they won't look like how they should. Uh, but uh, but that's definitely a problem. Egg binding will definitely be a problem if your uh, females are gotten overweight. You will run into that, and it is more often than not fatal, which really really sucks. Um, but that's kind of a thing you have to pay attention to in house snakes, which you would not necessarily need to worry about in other types of snakes. Um, they definitely seem to have a higher incidence of egg binding than other types of snakes do when the females are a little more overweight, unfortunately. Um, so obesity is a problem in house snakes and they actually do have diabetes too, which is interesting. You know, it's funny. I don't think we actually talked about feeding Mm -hmm. somehow. So when it comes to food, is it, Mice, chicks, all of the above, none of the above. How frequent? Um, for most of the years that, of mind. my keeping of house snakes, which I'm pushing two decades now, so that's a long time. Um, I kept them on exclusively mice, um, just mice. Um, as I was able to get more yeah. uh, reach over in Africa, where I was able to kind of join in certain groups where there would be wild sightings, and, and that's very exciting for me, um, I found that they were able to eat a lot bigger than one would think, and they have a lot more diversity of diet over there than you would think. Um, and I've been able to feed them uh, things like chicks, um, that sort of stuff. You certainly can, but... From my experience, it's not necessary. You don't. It's not a mandatory thing. They can live on mice their entire lives, and and uh, I actually did just not not too long ago have to put down one that was uh, seventeen years old uh, who was raised on exclusively mice the whole time, and that's that's a fairly good age. Um, Twenty plus, you know, years is is a long, long time um, to be doing it, and. Uh, so I'd say it's fairly safe to keep them on just mice for their entire life. Um, certainly has been the case with a lot of my very first breeders, which are now either aging out or have been retired for a long period of time. Um, they've been on exclusively mice. Um, and they are very good fears on frozen thawed uh, for the most part. Uh, wild caught, the wild caught ones tend to be a little bit more like want to be fed live. 
babies that are, you know, started on like, say, you know, red hot pinky mice can be quickly converted to frozen thawed red hots. Uh, it typically takes me less than three feeds to get them on frozen thawed and then they'll be on frozen thawed for the rest of their lives with no issues. So it's, it's nice. That's a nice thing about working in like Cape house snake. Um, they're, they're not hard to feed, which is great. Um, the wild caught blacks and stuff can be a little trickier. Um, they can get a little bit more stubborn, um, and they can be a little more stubborn to start. But like I said, you use like gecko juice and things like that. There's ways around. Uh, even the, the trickiest of them. But, um, yeah, they definitely, it's not complicated, really. They're, they're pretty easy. And then frequency? Is this a once a week? Yeah, I feed all of mine or on the it, same like, day. How, how do you avoid obesity? So basically, is the big how do we question. avoid obesity? Basically, you're just paying attention. Um, so, like, for example, okay. I have a very old... Uh, file snake named butters who is um she's she's a chunk and that runs in her bloodline unfortunately where they tend to be fairly large that's kind of one of those things you you get to learn as as you've been doing it for a really long time is they just like humans have propensities towards things and in that specific animal's line it seems like they're a little bit more prone to obesity so what i do for that is you kind of just pay attention to the body uh shape and type and if they're getting a little too chunk, then uh, feed them size down or even skip a meal so that they're only eating every two weeks okay. until you can get them back down. Um, I don't like to I don't prolong fast where, you know, like you were going, say you feed them once a week, once a week, and then you just don't feed them for a month. That would be a very bad plan. Um, but feed them size down until they've gotten to a point, you know, where they're back to a good body shape. And then you can, you know, feed back up if, if you need to, you know, if it's gone too far. Uh, but typically that's how I handle it is I just feed them a smaller size than usual, but I still feed them once a week, even if they're a little overweight. Um, cool. Oh. So now we're going to bounce back sure. to breeding. I guess we're like all over the place. That's fine. I like it when it's like this, to be honest with you. Um, so we, we get mm-hmm. eggs. You know, eggs are on the ground. Is that a... A month, two months after you see a lot. 65 days, typically. Um, 65 yeah, days. So, <laughs> 65 days. Yeah, I've, it's it's almost a science Very over here. Very specific. Um, well, back, like I said, back when I was wholesaling, <laughs> I used to have to produce like a hundred or so a week, which was a lot to keep up with. And so I, it came to a very... Um, I hate to say commercialized, but it really was. It was a very commercialized outfit where um, productivity was tracked and, you know, timeframes were tracked. And I got to a point where I had knew exactly when everything was going to happen. So, yeah, it's typically like, you know, 65 days. Um, And, you know, what's interesting is like the hatching isn't always exactly the same, even when they're kept in the same incubator. It's kind of like different females will give you different sized eggs. So you won't have an exact like, It'll be exactly the stay. Um, and it's not it's not precisely 65. Sometimes, you know, there's a little bit of variation, but that's typically what you're looking at. It's not very long. Um, but, yeah, so if you're running a quarterly schedule, which is what I do, um, you're looking at, you know, one being uh, laying, and then that previous clutch will be, ha, 
hatching and you will be able to sell that previous clutch at the time that the next one will start hatching. Boom, 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 because it all kind of runs on this two month cycle um, with with uh, house snakes. They'll and then if they're going to double clutch and whatnot, which they typically do, um, they're going to do that about two months later. So you'll have one hatching, one laying one that's starting if if you're like me i don't offer the babies to the public until they're two months old and have ate eight times which i know is a little bit more than a lot of people do but because they're so tiny um i like them to have just a little bit more size before they go out um compared to like i respect yeah it just makes it easier for everybody yes i'm thinking the same thing um it it really it's like for anybody who is just uh you know being rubbed wrong by the the word commercialized, you know, when, when saying your setup, I was sitting here thinking, look at how much you learned mm-hmm. because of that process. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the fact that you were able to say 65 days, it was because of that standardized process that you were following yeah. and, and learning that through there. But, and then coming on top of that and saying, you know, holding it for eight full meals. Yeah. I'm with you, Zach. I respect the hell out of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, honestly, it, it makes less work in the long run. I know a lot of people, from a business standpoint or like, ah, oh, that's too long. Um, but it makes sense for what I do because then I'll have an entire rack that I'm pairing. I'll have an entire rack that is laying. I'll have an entire rack that those eggs are hatching. And then I'll have a rack where those eggs, those babies have started. And then the next rack will be ones that are ready to go. And so that cycle will pair, will go right back to the beginning after that, where they'll be laying blah, blah, blah. Right. And it just, it, it goes like yeah. rack by rack at that point. And it makes things really easy for me to keep track of and to tell if there's problems. Um, like, for example, if a female in a specific rack, you know, if, if they're just not doing it, then I'll, I'll be able to notice that even though I have half a thousand snakes because this piece is missing from this rack. You know what I mean? It's, it's not there. So you get to notice these things without having these really complicated mm-hmm. systems. Um, I'm pretty old school. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know if you can see it here, but these are um, just, um, let me see if I can bring it up. I have a tagging gun that you would use for like pricing. Um, <laughs> and, and that's how I do it. Um, mm-hmm. So like it says, like it's a two line, it'll say words on the top and it'll have a date on the bottom and like, I don't know if you can read that. Probably can't, but it, it, no, it's, it, it reminds me of Clint's index. Card. I used to run index <laughs> cards. Um, the problem was, is that like on the index cards, it was like when I was moving the bins in and out, they would fall out and then I would lose track of where they went. Mm-hmm. So now yeah. it's done on the bins um, with this. Like I have a few of these actually price tagging guns and, it just, they like say, like, if somebody doesn't eat, like I have half a thousand snakes and I can tell you just by looking at it, if they've ever stopped feeding what they needed to do to get back on it when they were paired last, when they like all of their egg laying, it's all on the bin. It's all there. And so even though I have hundreds, I still have very good record keeping compared to what I understand from a lot of commercial outfits, simply because I just have these little stickers. And I just put them on the bins. Yeah. No, I, 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 I believe in old school simplicity. Yeah. I've, <laughs> I've definitely tried. And I also love to take data. Uh, yeah, so. me too. I, me too. And you just don't notice things if you're not like record keeping like that. You know what I mean? Like you just won't notice like 
if you need to retire a female, right? And keep in mind, like I've been doing this a really long time. So some of my original breeding stock, I bred for almost 10 years straight and it was fine. But eventually I did hit this wall where it was like, I wasn't getting production out of them anymore. And I do retire my females. They do live with me the rest of their lives. Like I'm not that guy that's like, Oh, I bred you to the point where now you're not producing anymore. Let me sell you off to somebody else. And you like, you earn your spot <laughs> once you've gone through, you know, the life mm -hmm. there's, there's several in here like this specifically, like this rack right back here is all full of breeder males that have been retired. Like, that will get to relive the rest of their lives here. And, you know, if somebody, you know, specifically wants one for a pet or, or something, then I can, you know, then I'm willing to do that, but I don't automatically just sell them. Um, it's kind of one of those, like they have a good life and, you know, they put in their service and they deserve that. So um, I don't always sell them, but uh, yeah. So it's, you, you notice those things though. What I, You notice those things when you keep track of things that you may not have noticed um, so if you need to replace, say you're doing a commercial outfit and you need to replace a female that's not really producing or a male that doesn't seem to be actually fertilizing the females that he's paired to, you'll notice those things when you're keeping track of records like that. Whereas you just wouldn't, if you weren't, you know, it's an, it's efficient. Yeah. See, I'm also a big fan of visual simplicity is, is what I'll call it. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. um, what I do now is, you know, speaking of the, the index card system, Zach, um, a lot of my racks are ARS racks now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I can't prop my cards in like I would a, a PDC rack, uh, you know, kind of beside the bin. Uh, so I, I enhanced things this year. That's right. You know, big time over here, right? I, uh, first off, uh, all my index cards, they've got their labels printed and stuck in the upper left-hand corner on the, with the ID number, what the snake is, any more of any of that. Well, all the males are on blue cards. <laughs> all the females, right. you got it, are on blue cards. And, yes. so, and then what I've done is all the females actually have two index cards because one stays on their uh, stays on their uh, tub all the time, and they're taped on. Um, so the, that one doesn't move. The other one, it's taped on, but just with a strip across the top. Because when I pair that with a male, that card gets moved down to the male's tub. Right. So whenever I'm coming in to separate a room with, you know, 90 plus tubs in it, I can quickly and easily see which male tubs has a female in it because there's a pink card next to a blue card. Um, and I can quickly find which tubs these females go into because it's a pink, just one pink card on that tub instead of two. Right. Uh, so it's. Any little thing to, to speed the process yeah. up, you know, and help me from having to, to hunt through all these ID numbers to ensure I'm putting the, the proper animal back in the proper tub. Um, and I also stole something from Matt uh, recently, and that's oh Matt will take, um, is it masking tape? Is that the, mm -hmm. the yellow tape? Matt yeah. takes uh, masking tape and puts it across like the bottom section of his tubs, and that's where he'll write his notes throughout that season, you know, across whenever it's shed, whenever it's bred, whenever he's put something together. And uh, so I've started doing that because it was, it's easier to write on that mm -hmm. than I, you know, sometimes that when you're crawling down there on the bottom tub to try to write on a card, things like that. Um, so yeah, I've kind of 
kind of up my game in a lot of ways, I guess. So here's another one for you for IDing. Lose that old school index card piece. I'll show you another trick of mine for the for quick IDs and stuff. So my my guns right have these little stickers on them, which are blank unless I you know choose to make them into whatever. Um, They have different colored tape, so each color corresponds to something that I'm doing with it. For we're looking at green. So for example, the green tape is stuff that I use to ID the snakes that are for sale, right? And then I have a pink tape uh, that's for basically just like um, random notes. Uh, orange tape is for breeding notes. Uh, I have yellow tape, which is for feeding notes. Um, so basically, oh, like yeah. if I'm going in and, and I'm trying to, I actually pull counts every single week because every week when I uh, come through and I'll like pull the feed and do the cleanings and all that stuff, um, each bin gets individually assessed. Um, and that, so like if say a snake's been off feed for like three, you know, weeks and I'm feeding them frozen thought or something and say it's a male and he's, you know, worked up, I'll put a yellow sticker on there, um, that will say offer something else like offer live or offer, you know, different, whatever it is that I think it needs to do to get him back on feed. That way, every, the next day when I come in to do the counts for how much frozen thawed I need to pull out or how much live I need to send to my rodent breeder to, you know, acquire that. I have that information for every single one. And then because those stickers are there, I'll know if any of it changes too. So the next day when I come in to feed everything, I have the stickers that say what they feed on that are in white, but I'll also have yellow stickers that'll say like, Hey, you're not doing that this week. You're going to move over to this. Mm. Um, so every there's, there's actually five different colors that my guns run off of and each one has its own gun. Um, so that way, if I, um, need to change something from week to week. And it's always different. It always is. Um, It's easy. It's really easy to identify because you have different colored tapes. So all you have to do is look for that color based on what you're doing. So like if I'm pairing, I'll only see orange because that's the color I use for my breeding stuff. And I'll just look for the orange stickers specifically. Whereas if I'm doing feeding, I'll look for the yellow stickers specifically. And it really does keep things supremely organized um so just an idea just another thought for you you uh, for your systems love it yeah and they're very cheap um the the guns very quick good golly we started talking about incubating eggs and we ended up talking about yeah (laughs) that's my (laughs) that's my favorite thing about these podcasts it's so organic the you, know, you run out on tangent. Are are well worth doing, I think. But final question. Well, we have two questions. One is our standard question that we end because we're at a we're we're right in like that Goldilocks zone for length. Gotcha. But just real fast, egg incubation. We'll end on this. Anything special, or you know, do they need to be at a certain temperature, like Africa temperature, 82, 5? Yeah, so I incubate at 82 and a half, exactly. I have herp stats that run my incubators that tell that go exactly 82 and a half. Um, I know of people who literally will put, like, that have an ambient temp that just fluctuates crazy, um, and they'll just put them on top of the shelf, and that's, and then just, they kind of hang out there. (laughs) 
that's not precise enough for me specifically because of the goals that I have to do um, in order to make those kind of quotas that I was telling you yeah. about. I have to have a very precise system. Um, so for me, it doesn't work to just do that. But there are definitely people who do just throw it on a shelf and it's all good. Um, and it does work. Uh, me personally, it's just not precise enough for me uh, for all the things and all the information that I, I like to keep track of. Um, so yeah, incubation temp 82 and a half is kind of where it's at. I even incubate my file snakes at 82 and a half. File snakes are interesting because they have varying incubation time. Um, I've read of, a, or I've read of one that was incubated at like 73 and it took 99 days, but they still hatched, which is kind of interesting. Um, I think the last, this season, uh, I have three file snake clutches on the ground right now that like just hatched in the last couple of weeks. They took 77 days, but I've had them take 65. And so there's just this really wide range uh, with file snakes hmm. for how long they incubate at, which is pretty crazy, but it, it depends on the temps you do it at, but they're not as, um, they're not as hard to mess up as one might think. Um, but just because I'm very precise, I guess what I'm saying is I, you don't have to be precise. Like I am, I, I have a very specific, you know, goals that I have to meet. Um, whereas the common hobbyist really doesn't need to worry about it all that much, you know, just kind of keep an eye on them, check them every now and yeah. then make sure they're not sweating too bad, um, that they don't get mold. Cause they will mold if they're sweating too bad, just like any other species of egg. Um, but other than that, not really. I mean, they're, they're pretty hardy. Cool. Yeah. Pretty hardy. Mm -hmm. All righty. Well, our our final question, which is something that Matt started asking people, and um, I'm going to ask in honor of Matt, is we like to ask our guests kind of as our wrap-up question, uh, and, it, and this is more broad. It doesn't necessarily have to be specific to colubrids, colubroids, but it's more of a, a herpetoculture as a discipline uh, type question. What what are your thoughts as far as the future of herpetoculture is concerned? Mm -hmm. Do you think the future is bright? Do you like the trends that you're seeing? Do you think it's not bright? Um, just kind of. You are asking a Floridian on this at this point, though. So yeah, keep I, that I was, in mind. As I was asking, I was <laughs> wow. thinking, oh, dear. Yeah. He's in Florida. So this could be a little <sighs> spicy. Uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Okay. But yeah, go ahead. Um, hmm. <laughs> uh, in Florida, <laughs> we are definitely under attack by the government system here. Um, a lot of my fellow keepers who I admire um, have fled just as economic refugees from the state. Uh, because of how very loose our legislation is and how undefined it is and um you know other special interest kind of problems which we won't go into for the sake of time but um so that in itself makes me nervous if you're a floridian um i do love it here uh coming from alaska it's definitely a change but um i <laughs> i do love being here um it's a great place for to be a professional reptile breeder except for if the law suddenly decides to change and then you're outlawed, which is kind of crappy. Um, so there's that. Having that said, though, I think it's only going to expand. I mean, it's it's the natural 
uh, evolution of things to spiral out, you know, uh, in my specific niche, it's definitely grown a lot. It's, I definitely see it growing more. It's a very easy animal. They have a lot of morphs. They have a lot of those kind of markers that people tend to find in animals that become very popular very quickly. And so I, I would strongly doubt that it's going downhill for house snakes uh, specifically. I think it can only go up from here. Uh, as far as the market goes and everything, a lot of new breeders getting in, a lot of people. I spend a lot of time answering questions <laughs> um, just for people that are excited. And, and I love doing that. It's my favorite thing is, you know, just educating the masses and, and trying to promote the health and well-being of my um my family of, you know, land profit snakes, uh, definitely my, uh, kind of my life's work, you know, really. Um, so, yeah. so that's, I think it's natural to expect me to think that it's going to move forward. Um, uh, just because it's what I do. Hmm. Um, and it's definitely has, I mean, statistically speaking, I, I can definitely say that there was a time period where I wasn't going to be able to support my family on just, and profit snakes and that has came to fruition in the last half a decade which is awesome i think everybody should do what they love for a living it i think the world would be a better place if they could um so yeah i definitely see it moving forward cool uh, i i think we will have some hurdles when it comes to legislation um just we have a lot of a lot of misunderstanding and miseducation amongst the, the general population. And I think it's going to be crucially important going forward that we spend time educating the masses. Um, and I think that's why yeah. these sort of things, podcasts with people who have been doing this a long time or, you know, who know a good amount about maybe smaller, you know, things could help in that future, you know, could help even if you can just turn the minds of just, you know, that one child, you know, that, that comes in, that was a, afraid of snakes. And then you, you plop a file snake in their lap and they're like, this is awesome. By the end of it could, you know, teach hundreds, you know, of their importance and yep. change the world, you know, on, on that. And that's very exciting. You know, if you think about it, no, I would, I would definitely argue that Florida is a is it is its own beast in North American herpetoculture. Like the 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 battle lines have been drawn on both sides, and it it and, and one side's definitely more heavy handed than the other. I'm not I'm not going to say which side, but if you've been following, you know which side I'm talking about. I have to walk yeah. a delicate dance because I'm a. I'm a conservation biologist that works with state agencies and federal agencies and the people that are making the rules are literally the people that I work with a lot. And I can tell you that. Uh, so you would you do know the importance of the captive breeding then? Yes. Well, I, I know that, but I also know the importance of having lucid conversations, right. which is very difficult to do. And I also know the importance of education because, like, I don't know if many people realize that there are April Linkfields in the world who are literally paying and supporting their family. Like, this is their mm -hmm. business. This is if, – if you you don't put regulations in that shut down the local grocery store, so now the grocery 
you know, the manager of that store has no income now. Um, there, there's got to be, you know, uh, a, a middle ground. At the same time, when I put my conservationist cap on, there, there has absolutely, whether we want to admit it or not, there's been, I would argue, severe environmental degradation from some of the animals that have escaped and established themselves. But given the fact that those animals happen to be 20 feet long, there's also going to be hysteria yeah. that, that, that yeah, there's not a, it's, it's complete fear mongering. Yeah. Absolutely. So, no, I, I get it. I, I totally understand. This is one of the, this is where Clint and I being up in the great white North, <laughs> we don't have to worry about that. I'm not sure I would call you Indiana know, the great white North eggs. where I'm from. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh well. Yeah, and I'm saying this to someone from Alaska. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> Sorry from the from the middle gray land. How about right. that? <laughs> that's right. Um, but but anywho, because yeah, that's what the Ohio River Valley is. We're just gray in yeah. the winter time. It's I don't pretty think much we had yeah. any snow. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Midwest is more or less. And... You just go do whatever you want to do. Just stay off my lawn, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. That's... Yeah. 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 I... <laughs> All right. Well. I... Yeah, I, I agree it. with Final you know the concept that there needs to be conservation. Um, one second, here we go. Um, I just think that we need to be careful and considerate about how we go about it. I will always do this. I, yes. I will never retire. I will always be doing this, whether or not I get to do it solely um, as the only thing I do for work for the rest of my life, that's going to depend on the, the legislation involved, but there's really not going to be any, any stopping me from, from doing it. You know what I mean? And I, I'm not saying that to say that like, Oh, if it became illegal, I would, you know, break the law or whatever. I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, as long as the options are there, there's going to be a lot of April link fields, you know, we're going to do this until we can't until the cows come home, you know, until we're, old broken hipped and you know all that because this is not mm-hmm. the way you you make money if all you're in it for is to make money you're passionate about this if you do this it's dirty work it's you know you're getting up early and you're going to bed late it's a lot of customer service it's a lot of reputation it's a lot of you know heart and soul it really is and um you're just not going to be that guy unless unless it means something to you. And those types are going to be sticking it out for until they can't, until the time that you know, until it's until it's done. But um, so I think that you know we need to have a little bit more coming together between you know um, mm-hmm. between the sides, especially here in Florida. I mean, oh, if we 100%. could just kind of have that, like you were saying, that conversation. If we could just kind of have this like you know, working together, a little collaboration, I think we can make a lot of ground. Um, But, you know, when they're every two days coming out with new legislation to to make it to where you can't even feed your family, you're going to have those kind of feelings on on both sides, I think, you know, because both sides are just trying to do right by their, uh, their people, you know, so it's unfortunate. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I think we do need just no, a little more perfect way to end it. Yeah. A little more co collaboration, you know, 
would be a, would go a long way for Florida. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. If, if you like this conversation, and I, everyone should listen to the episode I alluded to with Project Herpetoculture because I think I went off on this for about forty five freaking minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's why I was like, oh god, what have I done? Because I don't know. I was calling out everybody and calling out no one at the same time. It was it was bizarre. Anyway, okay. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic, April. We will have to have you back on if you would be willing to talk about another. Oh yeah, for sure. It's of your choice. It's what I do. All right, cool. So. Yep. <laughs> so if people want to find you, and they're now interested in house snakes, they've you know done their research. We don't want impulse buying because you listen to a podcast. Make sure that this is a good animal for you. But at the same time, if you make that decision and you want to go with April, how do they find you uh, and, and, and where would you recommend um, they go? So I'm on Facebook, April Linkfield, uh, my name. I have a business page, which is, you know, House Snake Morphs. Anybody that's typing in House Snake Morphs into Google will definitely find my animals, my pages. I'm not hard to find. I've been around for a really long time. So uh, those search engines definitely know me. Um so basically, uh, you know, uh, one of those pages hit me up. My website has a ton of information, way more than I could even talk about. I've just been writing articles on the family for a long time. And uh, so if you go on my website, the, uh, there's an information tab and it's it's just chock full of stuff. Uh, <laughs> so tons of places to, to look. I have a very well-developed care sheets on every type of animal that I keep. I, I find that to be critically important uh, for everyone, not just, you know, for me um, to have. And uh, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, I'm always around. So if you want to message me, go ahead. All right. Uh, happy to answer Very questions. Cool. Well, thank you yeah. for coming on. This was Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. I really, really enjoyed this one. Yeah, mm-hmm. no worries. So if you want to find me, Dr. Crawdad on Instagram, Zach Loafman on Instagram, and then this is the never-ending shameful plug for those of you interested in graduate school, always looking for good students. Um, and, uh, yeah, hit me up. Those of you who are looking for grad school would have invariably found out about the horrible monstrosity that is the graduate records exam, known as the GRE. I fought vehemently to eliminate it from West Liberty, so you do not have to take the GRE to get into our program. So uh, that means something to people that have taken that horrible test and had to figure out what ratio of purple ponies had gold horseshoes versus pink polka dots on rabbit hairs and like all this crap like in case you couldn't tell peeps the gre and i did not go along uh anyway um so yeah that's that and then those of you who are interested in finding uh clint where can they find you bud on facebook i am clint bartley as well as on instagram um we are excuse me metazotics page is also available on facebook uh, you can also find us at metazotics.com, or if you're in southern Indiana, come on by the shop. We're in Chandler. There we go. And then our good bud, Matt, who isn't with us tonight, serpamitra.com, serpamitra on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I'm certain he's waking things up. Um, so, yeah, that that is that. So whatever time of day it is that you're listening to this, hope you have a great rest of your day, night, morning, whatever. <laughs> And uh, thank you all for listening. Have a good one.